Well, a couple of months ago, there was uh, some chatter in the media about a, a, a musician who ended up leading worship at a large church down in uh, Texas and released an album called Jesus is King. You may have heard of him. His name is Kanye West. Now, West has been involved in a number of, well, interesting situations over the years and has definitely exhibited some actions and words that are decidedly unchristian. But in October 2019, West said, with respect to his past, when I was trying to serve multiple gods, it drove me crazy, in reference to the god of ego, god of money, god of pride, god of fame. He said, I didn't even know what it meant to be saved. And he said, I love Jesus, I love Christianity. Here's the real question. Who's more likely to hold him back? I have to confess, when I first heard it, his song on the radio, I had to check the station. Wait, what? Again, he's done things in his past that are inconsistent with Christianity. He's probably doing them now. But that's insane thinking because that's the whole point of Christianity. Every Christian has done things in their past and are doing things in their present that are not honoring to God. That's what's to love about Jesus. That's what's to love about Christianity. That's why we need to cling to the death and resurrection of Jesus and his righteousness, because without that, we've got nothing. So I should have rejoiced, prayed for this man. But I'm pretty good at keeping others in their place. I'm pretty good about putting people in a box and expecting them to stay put. I'm good at keeping others from going beyond my expectations of them. And maybe you are too. It's a problem. And it's especially problematic when it comes to expectations about Jesus, which is what we'll encounter in our passage that we're going to be studying today. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. An incredibly interesting story. And the author Mark has just finished up relaying some encounters with Jesus by people who had faith. There was a woman who was healed from 12 years of bleeding. Jesus miraculously healed her. There was a little girl who was 12 years old raised back to life. These are the kinds of things that Jesus has been doing and now he's coming back to his home town. Anybody grew up in a small town? I grew up in a small town in Idaho. I mean, small. It was like 20,000 people, about 10,000 when the, uh, all the students at the university left for the summer. Um, that would be a metropolis in comparison with Jesus' hometown, Nazareth. Uh, but our, our hometown had heroes. We had Dan O'Brien, who went to the University of Idaho and uh, trained there. Anybody familiar with Dan O'Brien? He was an Olympic gold medalist, decathlete, um, also failed to get into the Olympics. Um, that was a debacle. Um, but uh, an incredible athlete 
trained, trained right there in Moscow, Idaho, and uh, Moscow honored him. They had a Dan O'Brien Day. Where you get a whole day named after yourself. That's pretty cool. They renamed the track at the University of Idaho after Dan O'Brien. So, so here's Jesus. He's working miracles. He's not just a good sportser. He's healing people and raising people from the dead. And his teaching is amazing people all around the region. So what kind of reception is he going to get in his hometown? Well, let's take a look. Mark writes, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? The question they seem to be asking is not, Who is this? Which other people have been asking. They know, or think they do. The questions they're asking are the where and what and how. In other words, what's the source of the things that are happening through this man? Now, others have accused the source of being Satan. That's how they reconciled what was happening with Jesus and his power over demons in the spiritual realm. Now, his hometown people aren't saying that. They're not saying that. I actually don't even know if they believe it. But they're just, they're confused. The whole situation doesn't meet their expectations. Something seems off. And so they're asking questions to themselves. They're not bad questions in and of themselves. Right? Anytime we encounter teaching, we ought to be asking these questions. Right? Where is this coming from? How is it happening? Those are fine questions, but there is a little bit of an undertone in the questions that they're asking, and we'll see that more fully um, with the rest of the passage. The undertone is one of incongruity. Something doesn't add up in their minds. And so their astonishment isn't simply at God's work and wisdom. It's that something incredible is coming through Jesus who came from the same place as themselves. It doesn't make sense that the works that they've heard about, these rumors about miracles and people being raised from the dead and and all of these incredible things would come from his hands. Because his hands were calloused. right? The hands of a working man not a man of study. And so their questions continue. They say, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he had laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. The undertone is now a full undertow. They don't like this. Now, they're not saying that carpentry was a bad profession. 
by the way, but they're just, they're confused at how a guy who spent his whole life working, fixing things, building things, was able to say and do the things that they've heard. They've grown up with him or watched him grow up. He's probably worked on their houses, worked on their farm equipment. They've hired him to do things for them. He's been an employee of some of these people in the hometown. They know his family, right? Maybe they're nice people. Maybe some of them are not as, but they're certainly not more important than they are. Plus, there was all that weird stuff about his birth. Right, you got to give Mary points for creativity, a virgin birth, but we had health class. We know what happened, right? Actually, in, in fact, when, when they ask the son of Mary, and I think the most likely explanation for referring to Jesus as the son of Mary is that his earthly father, Joseph, was probably dead by this time. But it's also possible Again, maybe not the most likely, but it's possible that referring to him as the son of Mary is one of those little digs. Virgin birth? Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> we can't prove that he's got skeletons in his closet, but they've got to be there. Right? He's from Nazareth, for crying out loud, just like the rest of us. Even his own family earlier Mark records that his own family seemed to think that he was a little crazy out of his mind and so this proverbial statement that Jesus says can be so true that familiarity breeds contempt they had Jesus in a box taped and sealed how dare he try and wriggle out of it and leave the rest of them where they are And as a result, this next statement is astounding to me. He couldn't do mighty works there, right, except for heal a few people, which was big for them. I mean, don't get me wrong, but he couldn't do mighty works there. Everywhere else, huge crowds come to Jesus are following him, are looking for him to do something incredible in their lives. In fact, everybody was concerned that Jesus was going to be crushed by the number of people that were coming after him, but not in his hometown. Because where there is no faith, either few came to him or his power was somehow limited by unbelief. And that seems like a weird statement to say. I feel very uncomfortable saying it. To say that God can't do something. But in God's economy, faith is the currency. He doesn't seem to force himself on people. Now again, one quick caution as we're talking about faith and miracles and the relationship it can be really dangerous to assume that if God doesn't perform a miracle or work in your life that you expect or pray for or desire, that it's somehow that you lack enough 
faith. I just want to make that clear. But there is some sort of relationship between faith and what God will do for, with, and through you. What you don't want is for God to be astonished, for God to, be, to marvel at your unbelief. To be a person who looks at God or the work of God and says, yeah, it just doesn't fit in that box that I've put God in. So, right, there's got to be some explanation, one that doesn't require me to think outside the box. Again, I don't think I'm the only one who does this in my relationships with God, with people. Maybe you do too. We have two spheres of relationship. Relationship with God and relationship with everybody else. I know that I'm guilty of failing to think outside the box in both of those relationships. The most important decision that we'll ever make is to recognize Jesus for who he is. He's God. The people of Nazareth had put him in a box and they could not for the life of them, and I think that's a very appropriate way of stating it, for the life of them, couldn't see him outside of it. If we do this to Jesus, we miss out. We miss out on the most important thing. Again, the people in the story refused to acknowledge that Jesus wasn't confined to the box they placed him in, and as a result, at least at that time, what Mark was recording there, they didn't allow Jesus to do what he was capable of, willing to do, and eager to do in their lives, which was a mighty work in their lives, in their heart. We're talking about miracles and, and mighty works. And God may accomplish some of those physical miracles in, in your life. He may have already accomplished some of those things in your life. And if so, it's fantastic. What an incredible blessing to see God work that way. But even more important is the mighty work that God wants to do in every life of his creation, you and me. He wants to take our sin and replace it with Jesus' righteousness through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is a mighty work. That is a miracle every time that happens. If you're at a place where Jesus or God doesn't quite fit in the box that you've put them in, I would beg you to consider that Jesus is not going to fit in a box. To borrow the concept from C.S. Lewis, he is not tame, he's a little wild. He's not a conformer unless you consider that he wants to conform us to him. That's the way it should go. That's the order. Although what we like to do is to conform Jesus to us. Now as much as we might do this with God, I know I also make the mistake of doing this with other people. 
I have a confession to make. If someone is younger than I am and more successful, however I define that, I tend not to like them. I'm not saying this is right, but my gut reaction is to be on edge whenever I hear about, you know, prodigy children or kids who've started organizations or movements or people who are more famous or more wealthy than I am at a younger age, right? If they're older, there's still hope for me, right? But I can't catch up to someone who's already been there, right? That's me. This is a problem. I get it. I acknowledge that it's a problem. It's me being insecure. It's me suffering from multiple forms of jealousy because when I see that kind of stuff, it forces me to face how much of my life I've misspent. Speaking of jealousy, maybe you've heard this before, but there's two kinds of bad jealousy. There's one, the typical one that we normally think of, of I want what you have. I want it, not you. There's a second form of jealousy, which is a little more subtle and maybe a little more insidious, and that is if I don't have it, I don't want you to have it. And that second form of jealousy seems to be what the people of Nazareth are suffering from. Hey, how'd Jesus get out of Nazareth? And I have to stay here. How come God's doing things through Jesus and not me? How come he can teach and preach so much better than me. I've put myself in a box and now obviously everybody else needs to be in that same box. And so I, dare I say we, can tend to do this with God's work in other people as well. A checkered past, a checkered present, and I know I'm reticent to accept that such a person could be used by God, especially in ways that I'm not being. We're reticent to accept that a person could change, could be a Christian. I understand this application is a little bit different than our story today because all of us do have history, imperfections, sin, habits in our past and present that can legitimately be a hindrance in our relationships. Um, something super lighthearted, and I have my daughter's permission to share this, uh, on Friday happened that kind of illustrated this, this point in a real general way. So my wife and I are planning on, on uh, redoing our bedroom, changing some colors, doing some different furniture, etc., right? My daughter knows this. She's very gifted in the area of design and organization. And what she told me was, Friday night, I'm not going to help you. <laughs> right? You leave stuff all over the place. It's not going to be clean. You're hopeless. <laughs> I'm thinking, you're only saying that because that's all you've known for the last 14 years. Come on, give me a chance. I can change. You know, let me out of the box that you've put me in, that I've put myself in. Okay, that's, that's not a serious example. The more serious example would be my concern that 
Maybe some of you know me well enough that when you come in here and listen to me preach, you have a hard time listening to me. I'd like to think that I work hard to communicate God's word, but I struggle to obey it. I struggle to practice what I preach, and maybe some of you know that and have experienced it, and that's a hindrance. And I'm sorry. Now, we need to deal with sin, especially unrepentant sin, but I wonder, is it possible to keep our expectations from boxing other people in? Is it possible to move past that self-fulfilling prophecy in our relationships? Here's how this works, right? Here's how it worked in Nazareth. If we say God can't do anything through, insert name here, even yourself, then he can't? Again, not that God isn't capable, but if you came in this morning and you saw that I was preaching and you're like, Dave is such a jack wagon, I cannot listen to anything he says. God can't teach me through that sermon, not from him, then you're probably right. How many times have we kept others down because either we don't know them or maybe more often because we do know them? And we miss out. We miss out if we confine people and God to a box. And if we continue doing this in our lives, we're going to put you in a box, we're going to put you in a box, all of a sudden we're surrounded by all of these boxes that we've put people in, and guess what? We're boxed in. Whether we recognize it or not. Imprisoned by our own hands and our own judgments. So here's my encouragement to you for today. My encouragement would be for us to think outside the box. At the very least, to have an open box policy, right? To allow other people to exceed our expectations of them.